My guest this week is a comedian, sitcom writer, and self-appointed aunt of the Democratic Party, a veteran of Second City, The Groundlings, and Drew Carey's improv shows. She pivoted to an 18-year career as a television writer on such hits as Dharma and Greg, The Drew Carey Show, and Mom. I'm delighted to talk to Julie Larson. Thanks for having me, Ian. I'm really happy to be here. And Thank you, very uh, much. you you interviewed my friend uh uh Larry. Larry yes. Jackson. Yes. So that's how I met you and uh I appreciate being on your show. Hey, it's a great guy. He uh apparently he was having conversations about me online. <laughs> he was telling me and and you and Alan Katz and some other people. But that it's really nice of him. So you grew up in Geneva, Illinois? Yeah. Yeah, it's well, a small town, like, uh, about an hour west of Chicago with a train, very important, going right. It used to stop. The, the last stop was Geneva, and then you'd go into Chicago. And that first, and, of course, we were younger when we got to run around. I'm sure I'm older than you, but, like, I, I could take the train into the city by, like, 13 and taking the train in was it like the city was it you know it's so cool yeah i live in long island so it's an hour train growing up an hour train right into manhattan so same thing yeah and when you get there in the buildings and everything and you're like wow mike royko lives here you know it's just very cool what do you think of continental divide what'd you say what do you think of the movie continental divide uh, you're going to ask me about movies. I'm not going to know about any of them. Forget it. It was John Belushi where he plays Mike Royko. Oh, wow. I I will see that. Okay. John, yeah, that was, a, that was a great time in Chicago. Like when I was, and I was too little for it, kind of. But my, my dad, my dad's friends, all those people, older brothers. I'm fifth of six kids. So uh, we had Mike Royko read at the table a lot. You know, laughing. He was hilarious. But you asked me before in our pre when we talked before, like about comedy influences. And I have to say, it's like my dad and all his friends were the funniest people in the world to me first. And the people they liked. And they liked people a lot or they really didn't like them. So they were like, you know, that was my earliest. My earliest was people sitting around our kitchen table. And that's kind of what I always wrote. Like you said 18 years, but actually I had a lot of years of writing pilot and uh, I sold 13 pilots. So that's a lot. That's a lot of, that's years of pilot writing and uh, all kind of in the same theme of like commute kind of community. People do better in a group, you know, mm. but I'm from six kids, two parents in a two bedroom house, very small no shower so you either love each other or hate each other that's kind of how it goes and right. uh yeah so your parents got one of the bedrooms and then how would you decide which of the six kids got the other interesting well there was a landing so uh my sister and i my sister was the oldest we slept on the landing until she went into puberty and then we moved into the bedroom and my parents uh full-size bed came out into the onto the landing and then they were there till people started to move out at 18 you know you just go mm. right gotcha yeah so who like who, what did you watch on tv or did were you one of those people who didn't watch tv no i did like when i was a little kid i had to write stuff down because i was like Meh. but mm. when i was a little kid it was it was all the dumb stuff right after school that you may or may not watch if you had something to do you wouldn't but like Gilligan's Island and I Dream of Jeannie. It's it's like, even when you were little, you sort of knew it was stupid, right. but it kept you involved. Yeah. And there were some funny people on those shows. And, um, but then Dick Van Dyke and Andy Griffith were probably the big, you know, we didn't like watch TV during dinner or anything like that, but right. those were big. But then... And then there were all the Southern ones. Uh, you know, Mo Rocca does a show called uh, Mobituaries. Yeah, it's, it's really good. It's great. And he did one about the death of Southern television. 
that which was all in one season and it was like hee haw and um petticoat junction and uh beverly hillbillies beverly hillbillies and there was one what's the one the three girls what no that that was the that was oh, the junction. but then green then acres the, green acres all canceled same year very highly rated shows and they were replaced with like you know I, i'm not it wasn't maybe Mary Tyler Moore first or, but it was all classy, you know, um, right. uh, what, what, what do I have here? Well, it was Mary Tyler Moore and all, all in the, the family, all in the family. Like these shows, CBS wanted to be classy. Thursday night became classy. But the thing is we left a whole bunch of the country out when we did that, but yeah. they were great. And they were big influences in my life. And how could Mar Mary Tyler Moore is the funniest, beautiful woman of all time, I think. But she had great school. I mean, the Dick Van Dyke show was comedy school for her. She was so young, you know? And then she was lovely and she had great timing. Great people on that show. Yeah, Rosemary. Rosemary, oh, come on, she was so good. My grandpa was in love with her. He used to say, she can soak her socks in my coffee anytime. <laughs> I don't know where that comes from, but it's one of those. And the cool thing is she's playing Selma Diamond. Oh, right. One of the... Who I, oh, I love. I, yeah, she's amazing. Deb McGrath and Colin Mockery had a variety show, behind-the-scenes variety show type thing up in on the CBC in Canada. And they had a woman comedy writer named Julie Larson. That's Little, cool. Yeah. It's fun. And then where did life take you? So you're 18 and you're, you moved out. Moved to Chicago. Yeah, right away, as soon as I could. And, uh, you know, got a job for the Chicago Jefferson Awards, which is like the Chicago Tony Awards, okay. through an odd sequence of events. You know, I just like went on the train to Chicago. I moved in with this woman, Leah, and, um, and, took two suitcases and went home the next week with empty suitcases and came back. Like nobody like moved me in there or like nobody even saw that first apartment I lived in. I was a baby just like walking around Chicago, but it was a dream come true. It was so great. And Leah was leaving that job. So she kind of willed it to me. I don't think I would have gotten it otherwise. And uh, worked for a local Chicago actress named Dorothy Jordan who was the mom on the Morris the Cat commercials. Okay. And, and her husband was Captain Midnight in the old radio oh, show. Yeah. So I worked for those two and the Jefferson Awards Committee and uh, cocktail waitress, did everything in Chicago while taking classes at the Second City. Okay, so who was at the Second City when you were there? Uh, like, who were your teachers? I, well, you wouldn't probably, Joe Forsberg, um, Jeff Michelski and those guys were all there, but they were performing at that time. I don't think I had any really, I mean, Del Close, I worked with for a little while. Del was tough, lots to deal with. Amazing, really brilliant. But the, my attraction to that was, do you remember you, you wouldn't, the beginning of Saturday Night Live? My favorite show. I've seen every episode. So I... Oh my God. But the, the beginning as a, as a young girl. It just seemed like they loved each other. They all, you know, it just seemed like a happy family that was hilarious. And that's what I wanted. And I knew it was, at, I knew that Second City had something to do with that. So I wanted to go to Second City. So I moved to Chicago and started taking classes at the um, Players Workshop of the Second City. And I never really, I never transitioned into it. I moved to LA in 1984. So I moved to Chicago in 1980 and stayed there for four years. One of the funnest times of my life. Moved to Los Angeles in 1984. And then I started, I started co cocktail waitressing was the most amazing way to make a living. You make so much money a uh, couple nights a week and then you could take classes and do things like that. And I ended up in the comedy store players. So I did the, the open mic at the comedy store and Brian Bradley, was in charge of it. And he just said, hey, how would you like to try getting up with the comedy store players? And I was like, I love it. So, cause I had Second City background. 
and Robin Williams would come down and play with us. And, you know, we'd be Monday nights had just like Sam Kennison, uh, Louis Anderson, um, trying to think of who else. Um, this, this wasn't off the wall. No. Okay. This was just, a a, uh, an improv and sketch group that was just at the comedy store that would open up for the night of kind of open mic, but a lot of people would come Eddie Murphy, they'd come and do their material, you know, yeah. like they'd be working on material yeah. that come Monday nights and then all kinds of comics would get five minutes, but those guys would get, of course, whatever they wanted. And magic Johnson would be backstage and all that. I was just so, you know, just off the truck. I really loved that was one of the funnest times. Did you get like starstruck? Um, I didn't. I didn't. I think that's part part of what I was saying about like when you think you're fit, like I still think, and he's dead, so I'm not doing this for him, but I still think my dad is one of the funniest people I've ever met, and his friends Bart and Wilson and all these guys, and my mom. And so like I always kind of saw it as these people. I think part of the reason I even did what I did in my life, because my dad worked in a factory, I wanted to show that that they were that level, sort of. It's like I was so in their shadow. Still, I'm in their shadow. But, um, you know, I was able to work the way I was able to work, which was, you know, and God, did he love that. I don't know if I'm meandering off subject-wise. No, yeah, it was really fun doing the comedy store players. And then, but I always had to work <clears throat> really until I got Darman Greg, I worked at first as a cocktail waitress, then as a legal secretary. And I almost didn't think I was going to be able to transition into anything. I took classes at the groundlings. I got to the Sunday show and then I got voted out. I didn't get into the main company, but that's the year I went and met Ryan Stiles and Colin Mockery and started working with them at the Upfront Theater, which was a Second City Alumni Theater in Santa Monica, which was really, really great. It's like I uh, I fell into a better situation for me. The Groundlings is great, but it's like one dead zebra with a thousand lions. Like everybody wants the teaching positions. Everybody wants to be in the show. They want their material to be used. I think probably Saturday Night Live, I'm sure is like that too, but it's like, there's so many people who want so few spots that it doesn't always bring out the best in everyone. Yeah, a little the, knife, knife in the back sort of thing. Uh, I don't know if it's quite that bad, but um, I don't like to think of people that way. But, but there is a, it's really competitive, you know. And they had a lot of really strong women at that time. So I don't, I don't take it, I didn't take it horribly that I didn't get in. But I'm really glad for where I went. Because where I went was more free expression wise. Like you could, we were, we had great shows and they were downtown Santa Monica. There's no money. That's the best. That's the most creative part is when you're coming up and you don't, you know, once you're getting paid a lot of money, you got to, you got to produce and you got to produce what they want, you know? Right. So you're free. You're so free. You just do. You just do your comedy, you know, it's really fun. And Ryan used to say, we'll, we'll look back. This is the best time. And that was when he was doing the English Who's Line, he and Colin. So, but here's me. I'm at the law firm all day, coming down there two nights a week, right? And I was a single mother. And then, and those guys Friday nights would take, before our show would take Joan and I out, my daughter, for dinner, which we called whole piece of meat night because we'd get a steak or something you know, like instead of spaghetti or whatever we had at home every day. So that was really a, a lovely memory. And th from there, I got asked to, um, they, every year there was a comedy festival in Ireland called Murphy's Cat's Laugh. And a, a guy, uh, Michael, I can't believe I can't, this is gonna, I'll come up with his name, but anyway, after like four years, they asked me to go. And I was so happy. It was like 500 bucks, uh, you know, room and board. And then like 80, what would be 80 bucks a day per diem. It, it, it was a dream for me.
I got laid off right before that from my, and it was laid off. They just had business was going down. And, uh, so I went right to that place, um, to the Murphy's cat's laugh. And there was a woman named at the time, Dottie Dartland. Her name now is Dottie Zicklin. She's married to Eric Zicklin. And she was a co-creator of Dharma and Greg with Chuck Lorre. And she was staying in the bed and breakfast where I was staying. And then um, she would be at my shows and, and we started talking actually one morning. She came into the downstairs and I was in big rollers and I was talking to um, the women who worked in the kitchen. One of, her hus one of their husbands had taken all their money and gone on a big drinking spree and I was in this mid conversation and it was a little Dharma-esque. She was like, wow. Like, so she came over and talked to me and we, I, I said, oh, come tonight. We're going to do this and blah, blah, blah. And I'm a single mother without any help. So it's like, it was like, if you open the back gate and the dog gets out and I just was having so much fun. Just only had to do two shows a night. Other than that, I was free and I had 80 bucks a day to do whatever I want. So, um, after like three days, I'm like, are you some comics girlfriend or what are you doing here? And she was like, no, I, I'm actually scouting for writers. I created a show called Dharma and Greg. And I'm like, oh, you got to meet Mike. You got to meet. And she's like, what about you? And I'm like, I can't sit still. Like, that's probably not going to work. She's like, well, we, we, we write in a room, everybody together. And, uh, you know, we, we have a lot of writers. We, we, need like some jokers, some, some people who kind of get that sensibility maybe. And I just kept saying no. And she was finally like, will you just come in and meet? So when I got back, I met with them and, uh, I was working the next day after I met with them and I never went back to a law firm in my life. That was it. So your first day that you're in the writer's room, were you intimidated? Totally. Like two weeks in, I'm so sorry about this. I cut it out. Two weeks into the um, my working there, Chuck Lorre, we were all kind of camping on a joke or something. And Chuck Lorre was looking at me and I was eating a bagel. And my back tooth broke. And I swallowed it. With, with like a mercury, just swallowed it because I was so scared. And I was intimidated, but, and, and I was told I wasn't going to be coming back after like five weeks. It was a 10 week contract. Dottie took me out for lunch and just said, you know, we've got a big room, da, 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 da. But what happened was, um, once we got on stage, so you, you have a certain amount of time you're writing in the room and then you go on stage and you're filming it in, in the, in the multicam thing, you have rehearsals and then you have pre-shoots on, we had it on Thursday, Friday night, we would shoot the show. So once you get the show up on its feet, because of my background, I, I kind of had an instinct of why jokes didn't work and which jokes didn't work. And I was like, I can do this. So I was, I'd see they'd change jokes, you know, we'd go back and do a rewrite and I'd do a little bit there, but I was keeping track like the, like, so Friday night when we shoot the show, you're still replacing jokes on the stage for the day before I just, and the night before I stayed up almost all night making an alt joke for every joke in that script. Like whether I thought they'd work or not, I just did it. And I replaced three scene blows. You know, so at the end of the scene before the commercial, you got to have a, a snapper, right? I replaced three of those that night. And uh, Chuck Lorre put his head around the corner. I was in, of course, craft services. I gained like 30 pounds that first year because I couldn't believe you could just eat whatever you want, you know? So I was like always in craft services. And he stuck his head around the corner and he said, hey, you had a really good night tonight. I said, thanks. I felt like I did. And he goes, I don't think you know how good. And then he walked out and I thought, they're going to pick it up. They're going to pick up my contract. And Monday morning, 
Dottie was sitting in front of me, right? And we're doing it at, we're doing it our Tuesday morning. We we're doing a run through and she's got her script. And all of a sudden she rips off a little corner of the script and it says, we picked up your contract today. And I worked there for three years, but mostly what I did is that mostly what I did is fix jokes or come up with jokes or, you know, but that was like story school. Cause Chuck Lorre, like Drew Carey shows very joke centric, right? Darman Greg was very story centric. Do you prefer either style? <clears throat> I think they're great together. I think you could be too jokey. I like Drew Carey was Dilbert. I mean, it was what it was and it was really fun and really funny. And, uh, but like that wouldn't have worked in the Dharma was more, it's like, that's more girly. I think Dharma, you know, it's like the story thing where it's like, it's all the comedy comes out of character and you know, that kind of stuff, I guess. Well, my favorite shows are like taxi and cheers and that's comedy coming out of the character. Totally. Yeah. They were both big joke hitters though. So also, was Dharma, though. Dharma had great jokes. Yes. Yeah. One of the episodes you wrote for Dharma and Greg, I always look at this when I interview somebody, um, <clears throat> is the second highest rated on IMDb uh, episode of Dharma and Greg, for Pete's sake. It, well, Pete was Greg's friend. Yeah. I, I think it's when Dharma's trying to fix him. But, you know, we wrote those. Th those were very... Uh, we did... Everybody worked on every script, so. But I was very involved in that one. I think the story. Greg leaves for the Army Reserves, and Dharma has to put in. That's what it said. But I, I don't know. I don't, it's, it's so. It's yeah. so long ago, and there were so many. I was, and I was so overwhelmed. And you just find out you got credit, you know. Like those were Chuck Lorre, especially at that time everything happened in in the room and you'd be in the room or out he might put you out of the room so it was a was the work week work year was 36 weeks 30 weeks yeah you'd go through you know the beginning of april and then you'd come back june 1st you know give or take <clears throat> and june till you started filming it wasn't terrible hours <clears throat> well chuck never worked terrible hours Drew Carey had a little bit more, but not much by the time I got there. Before I got there, they'd stay up all night. Sometimes in those early years, they do that. And I went, I wanted to do, I wanted to travel with Who's Line and do that too. And if I was on Drew Carey, he could pull me out of the room. So that's why you left, because you wanted to continue performing. Yeah, I wanted to, if I could perform, you know, plus it was, it, it was great. Drew, he was so gracious. He 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 split the uh, he split the door with us, so it wasn't. We all made out like bandits. I mean, nobody was buying a, a ticket to the Julie Larson show. They were buying it to see Drew, and you know. So I felt fortunate. First week you went to the Drew Carey show. They did a weird thing. Well, first of all, he had that heart surgery like right before you got there. No, that was a couple of years in, I think. Oh, I, I mean, he I had a stroke, or, or not a stroke. I call everything in the heart a stroke because because I'm stupid. Um, but he had a, a heart incident in his trailer, and it ha he had to have that surgery. But that was a that happened a little ways in. Okay. So, so I was looking it up, and it was and it was look. It sounded like it was your 2001 and then they did the um sketch episode where with all the rock musicians and jenny mccarthy that was so those were so fun those were great the back to school ep uh episode yeah i know you know that was really good i was there for that mm. yeah and uh and then of course they did the live shows which were really fun we were i remember people winning contests and being on being on the show but at my from my seat i didn't it was like i was working mid-level producer so i wasn't putting those things together right i was just on the script also i did the the uh produce the producer's cast so in other words people go to the casting director to be cast and then 
what they the casting director picks, you know, five people or something. And then every week the guest cast would have to audition for the uh producers. And that was me. So I had my hands full with that area. And but they did have contests and they had people that would win extra spots. It was so fun. It's really fun when people I love the three I like the uh multicam. I like an audience, you know, people like I hate the laugh track. It's mostly it's the audience. Yeah, and they don't usually sweeten it. They usually have to turn it down some. Now you've got somebody that's, you know, like Mark Sweet or one of those guys that are, you know, getting the frothing up the audience. But and great real there's a lot of really good performers that are better with a uh with a live audience. And you wrote an episode, I don't know if you drew carry with fam called Family Affair. That's one of the higher most liked episodes of that show. Yeah. Family Affair. Janetta oh. Arnett was the guest star. Who's on head of the class? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She was not we had episode to episode, it's really hard to remember because yeah. When you put it all together, it's so many hours of television. And um, they would just, you'd, you'd finish and then beyond to the next and beyond to the next and beyond to the next. So yeah, it's, I'm a teacher. It's like if you ask me what my lesson plan was, you know, I'm not going to remember. Yeah, the, your most liked lesson plan of 1999. It's yeah. really hard, really hard. What do you teach? Can I just ask what? Yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, um, teach government and economics. Uh, to wow seniors in New York City in Queens. That's the show. Like I, I taught improv. I did a volunteer thing teaching at a senior center. Improv. Really old people. It was fun. They were great. They were really dirty. Yeah, they are because they have no filter. No, and they have nothing to prove or lose. I, I like the story. I heard heard you on uh, another podcast. The, the stories about your father when you went back home and what he was his biggest regret in life. What did I say? That, he that, never he never got to do it with a black woman. Oh yeah, that was a sad one. Well, you know, we had the um they all loved Tina Turner. Yeah, that's that's the thing. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't, you know? Like, yeah, I know. I can't believe I said that. And he wanted his ashes to be spread over Beyonce. <laughs> Oh yeah, when he was sick. Oh my God, yeah, he, yeah, he loved women so much, but in a good way. It wasn't he wasn't creepy at all. It was just, no. I mean, this sounds creepy, but it wasn't. Um, that's funny. I've, I've forgotten about that. Which podcast was that? It Dave was. Rizowski? Yes. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's a Second City alumni. You wrote your own pilot you were 13 pilots and you had two produced and one of them was called washington street yeah that was great that was um Octa one of octavia spencer's first big jobs mm. and david eigenberg was in it and uh it was it was really good really fun i learned that was my first pilot and that was with the woman from darman greg that hired you no, that that was uh, "Are You There, Chelsea?" Right. The Chelsea Handler one was with Dottie, right. so and that was on NBC, but like for like thirteen, it was a like mid-season replacement. That's a death nail. Being the mid-season replacement with very little. There's there's some exceptions, but so what was what was Washington Street about? What was the what was the? Um, I have a through line, and Washington Street was basically my life as a single mother like it was a building where upstairs there was kind of a like party girl then my apartment with me and my kid i'm a legal secretary uh octavia spencer was the woman who worked across the you know in the in the next cubicle for me and then um college professor who's who's going to be teaching at ucla moves in the apartment across from me. And all, this actually was the way my apartment was. I had Dot upstairs and I had David across. And David Eigenberg played the guy across the hall. And uh, Cynthia Watros played me. So 
the running, the running. So there might've been a love interest there, like that was coming, but he was engaged. It's like more of a friendship. There was no love interest with David and I, although we were friends and <clears throat> it's a kind of thing where, uh, people are better off with each other. Like in other words, if you've got somebody that loves you upstairs and you have to go to the store to get your kid Pedialyte because they're sick, you got any number of options of what to do. You know what I mean? It's like that being well cared for is not a financial issue. And that's always what I was writing. I was always writing people who didn't have a lot of money, didn't have a lot of status, who had great lives. Because I grew up like that. Like we didn't have any money. It was so good. And the, and the thing that drove me creatively was like, wow, once I saw status, I'm like, status blows. Like having it blows because you turn into a douchebag and not having it blows when other people do because you feel less than. It's like, we're all equal. Who gets to have the best life? Who's loved the most? Who gets to love the most? You know? Who gets to sleep with a black girl? You know, these are all the metrics, you know, and you win some and you lose some. And so like, I, I really, like everybody has their creative voice and the thing that they hold on to. My thing I held on to is like, anybody can have fun and anybody can be fun. And, you know, and they might like, uh, they might be an annoying character. It's like Seinfeld so great to have George Costanza who's not he's not that happy but he is in a community he's loved you know and they didn't want the first year they they were gonna they didn't want to do that show with him and Jerry Seinfeld very rightfully probably uh uh what's his name too they wouldn't do the show without George so like they picked it up a year later or something because George didn't test well because when people were, you know, working that testing room, when he came on, they're like, we don't like him. But that doesn't mean they don't like not liking him. Do you know what I mean? So Eventually, he's the most popular character on the show. Exactly. One of the most popular characters of all time. Am I wrong about that? Yeah. No. Yeah. Or you look at Louis De Palma, or he's not likable. Yeah. Or... or uh, what was it? What was a cop show uh, where they uh, the really funny um, Barney Miller, Barney Miller, the captain was that's like a great, very small character. That captain was hilarious. Inspector Luger. Yes. I love Inspector Luger. I mean, come great. on. And but completely crabby, completely ridiculous. Um, not really taken seriously, even though he's the inspector, you know, and a little tender in there too, you know. My favorite character on that show. Yeah, he's my favorite. He's mine too. Barney Miller was good too. That's a hard part. That's that centering a show, mm. you know, not the funniest yeah. one on it. Norman Lear talked about growing up in that Jewish kind of uh, what he grew up in, New Yorky, and he said. He said, my uncles were all tailors. I have four uncles that were funnier than me. And I'm not kidding. I'm not being nice. They were funnier than me. I, th I just thought that was so great. He's like, it was the culture. That's what we did. We were funny. Yeah, it's like some people didn't know how to do it for a living or didn't know what was yeah. a living or, right. Yeah. Yeah, the first... The, the first stage of it. I have a stage in my backyard. I taught improv back there. I saw that. Yeah. And um, I, I just think the first line of all entertainment is each other. You know, I mean, it wasn't before, before records, before, you know, film, everybody's hero was their dad or their uncle or somebody, you know, they're, everybody's favorite musician was somebody they were related to. It's kind of fun, like play, you know, Play something, you know. Do you know who Keb Mo is? Yeah, I heard the name. Blues guy. He's a blues guy. He's like won a couple of Grammys, and so he's been on our open mic nights. And then there'll be like a neighbor lady doing spoken word. That's, I, 
not good, but it's like, and a, a kid playing the ukulele. It's like, really, I think those things, there's a lot that comes out of that. That's really good. That, and then TV is like the best of it, you know, hopefully it becomes more, you know, I like kind comedy, like the mean stuff really like, ah, it's not worth it. It's a great way to bring people together, though, isn't it? I mean, it used to be that everybody, there's three channels, and everybody watched the same things. And even and a show that was that had bad ratings was still watched by one out of four people in America. Yeah, they'd still have like a 30 share. Right. Yeah. Beverly Hillbillies would get like a 60 to an 80 share. It's insane, yeah. the amount of people that watched it. So I read that in the Guinness book. Besides the last episode of MASH and um, all the Super Bowls, Beverly Hillbillies had like the highest shares of any shows ever. Isn't that just cra crazy? That I have a theory about Beverly Hills or Beverly Hillbillies. <clears throat> As a kid, I thought it was stupid. And when I grew up, I thought it was hilarious. And I think that's kind of the way it goes because it is kind of a stupid kind of humor. And if you're taking it too on the nose, but yeah. like that, the repeat of jokes, like Jethro going, I have a sixth grade education. <laughs> Just like it, he said it all over. And, and that Mr. Drysdale's secretary was hot for Jethro. Like all, all that stuff was just, it just, and it just, they do the same jokes over and over again. They had a huge audience. Yeah, and the, the funny part, the the ones, uh, Jethro, when he wanted to be a director, and he's wearing, like, the 1920s silent movie director. I don't he know what they call Yeah, and he's got those pants. I don't even know what they call them. They're all, like... Jodfers? Yeah, Jodfers. And he, he looks like somebody that, that should be directing Charlie Chaplin. Oh, it was, so like, funny. the 60s. I know, I know. That... I don't know if we're too far off on a tangent, but one of my favorite B stories on that show was, I don't remember what the A story was, but the B story was just Ellie Mae coming out with a cat and saying, I'm teaching my creator how to swim. And then she, she'd throw the cat in the pool. And so you'd see, I, look, I am not an advocate of cruelty to animals, but it already happened. And the the reason I I thought it was so hilarious is because they just did the same thing four times, and it's watching it's the crazy music coming on and watching a cat struggle in a pool. I know somebody's going to really hate that I said, but I don't advocate. I don't think they should do that. Okay, I, I don't. But it was just so inane that that was there that they're like, let's just throw the cat. In the nothing funnier than a cat in a pool. Yeah. <laughs> Who thought of that? It just makes me happy. Because they could CGI a cat now. Yeah. If they want, you know, if they wanted to do that. Yeah. I don't know that it could look like this. I think you'd have to be a living creature. It was pretty bad. I just remember uh, when you mentioned the cat. It always reminds me of uh, what John John Ritter said when he knew it was time to get rid of uh, to get off of Three's Company. He said the first season we had to hide a kitten from Mister. Roper. And in the last season, we had to hide a puppy for Mr. Furley. And you're like, okay, that's it. Yeah, he's like, that's it. That's Everything it. else, gold. Common exactly. gold. <laughs> exactly. Although John Ritter was a great performer and a, a sweetheart. And Don Knotts and Norman Fell are very funny. Yeah. Audra Lindley. Don Knotts is one of my all-time heroes. All-time. I mean, Don Knotts on the old Andy Griffith show. Even uh, the incredible Mr. Limit, Limpet. I guess I just like Don Knotts. I like his face. His his daughter says, I mean, it's his daughter, but it says like the kindest, the kindest things about him. And yeah, if your yeah, family he, likes you, you're pretty good. No, I know. I was, I was like, yeah, it's a story, but nobody has mean things to say about Don Knotts. So no, no, it's good when you have that. B, uh, the the woman who played Aunt B. Ooh, that's a, that's the yeah. opposite right there. Well, she was mad because she wasn't making the money they were. Okay. And there is the kind of thing of like, if you're an older woman, you're you're lucky to have the gig. She's like, I, why does Don Knotts make more money than me? It kind of makes me happy that she was doing that, but it's still, it's like, well, yeah, 
He does. He's because he has the Emmys, I guess. That's his. That was his role of a lifetime. It was. It was just written for him. What was that? What was the movie that Townies was based on? That. Uh, about people who live in in the town with the college and uh, <laughs> i was thinking of another part of a lifetime where the kids in the bike race and he's and uh the apple dumpling you're going way back i'm not as old <laughs> as you think i am dude no, I don't know. I'm just thinking of Don Knotts movies. No, I'm not. Don Knotts isn't in this one. Oh, okay. I'm talking about Paul Dooley is. Um, With Molly Ringwald? No, it was a bunch of guys. Paul Dooley's son is in a bike race uh, at the college. They're breaking all, away? Breaking away, yeah. To me, did you see, you saw that, right? Yes, yes. To me, Paul, that was Paul Dooley's. I worked with him quite a bit and that was, but that was Paul Dooley's. He was in his forties. He played that father. It was beautiful. Just like a perfect fit of a part and an actor. I thought that was a great movie too. Oh yeah. And they tried to make, it's one of those ones that they try to make a TV series. Yeah. Townies wasn't Jenna Elfman was in that original Townies. Oh no. They made a breaking away a TV show. But they they made Townies was based on Breaking Away. Oh, okay. Too. I don't know. So Molly Ringwald was in it. Jen Elfman and somebody else. Molly Ringwald, she was great. I loved. I have to say, one of my favorite people I worked with was um, of old like comedians was Phyllis Diller. Oh. She played um, Kathy Kinney's grandmother on the Drew Carey Show. Makes sense. Totally. Late 80s, totally create, still totally creative, came out to our shows, uh, our improv shows, had lots of, she's just amazing, really. She had a bit she'd do with Ryan Stiles. Did I tell you this already? No. So she did this bit of kind of like she was having an affair with Ryan. Like she'd walk by him and like put her hand down his chest and say, so I like him long and lean. <laughs> and then. And then into the run, because she came back a couple of times, she went into Ryan's trailer and got his, you know, they all had robes with their names on them, right? Drew Carey show on the back and it'd say Ryan. She just started walking around the stage with Ryan's bathrobe on, <laughs> his, her bit. And she told me, um, she came to see my show uh, and she's we, we had dinner and she said, you know, I got to tell you, the dirty stuff, it doesn't work after 60. People don't want you to be dirty for whatever reason. But about 80, it comes back again. It works. She wasn't too, she wasn't gross at all. But she was like, I mean, for her to say dirty, she means like any kind of flirty humor. She's like, that's not going to work 60 to 80. But if you get to be 80, bring it out again. It all works. Isn't that it's great? Something, yeah, it's like, well, it's like if you look at Betty, Betty White's last oh my God. Uh, 15 years of her flirting and being. She was like, hilarious. Oh, my God. Yeah, I don't know why there's a drop off, but it, it does come back. And the thing about her is she was very, um, that, um, Lil Stiller is that she was a really attractive woman without the makeup and everything on her when she was younger. She was better without it. She's very, yeah, very, really uh, an attractive lady. My friend Paul Sands. Do you know Paul Sand? Yes, I know who he is. Yes. Yeah, Paul Sand, friends and lovers. You should interview Paul. I'd love to, but He's I have no I'll, I'll, I'll talk. I'll talk to him. Yeah. Um, but he was really close with close friends with Phyllis Diller, and he started taking her to this restaurant called. Um, Santa Monica Seafood that's on like 11th and and Wilshire Boulevard, right? And there's a bar. There's like a an oyster bar. He took her there once and it, she just felt like, I just, I'm not, I, I have to dress different to make this work for me. So the next time he took her, she wore a, a beautiful, really bright orange jumpsuit. And she, she had found this wig that was black feathers that she hadn't worn in years. And then 
she was Phyllis Diller. And so she could talk at the bar. She could have a glass of wine. And, you know, this is like just amazing, like still wanting that camaraderie, still wanting. She didn't need people to ask for her autograph. But she wanted to have, and people didn't know who she was anyway, because she's so old, right? People at the bar. But they wanted to talk to her. They wanted to ask her, ask about her, you know? Uh, I think I might have that story a little wrong, but but I know that was her outfit and that she loved. She That wig was something that she put away around 60 and pulled back out, you know? The one, one thing I always wanted to do, but I never did it, um, supposedly every night at Sardi's in Manhattan, which I've never been to, Joyce Randolph. How could that be that you've never been to Sardi's? I've never been in a Broadway show. I thought that's what the actors go after the show, not, but whatever. But um, I, I, And when I come to New York, we're going to Sardi's. Okay. Okay. What kind, what kind of food is it? I don't know. I don't live in New York, but I know Sardi's. I know the, you know, of course. So at the bar for probably 70 years, Joyce Randolph would sit at the bar. Oh, Joyce Randolph. She's 99 years old. I know. She just died. No, she didn't. Two days ago. Yeah, she did. Two days ago? Oh, Oh. Oh, then I really regret not going. (laughs) She would sit at the bar and just talk to people. Isn't that great? She was, she's Trixie, right? From, yeah, uh, yeah, she just died two days ago. Yeah. Yeah, I I was. Sorry, I have to be the one to tell you. You are a child compared to the people I've had on here, so. Oh, yeah. That's my room. I love that. Alan Katz is amazing. Yeah, I haven't gotten to him yet. I want to talk to him, too. He's great. He was a Oh, yeah, well, he, he's, he's trying to figure ago. a day. What? He's trying to figure a day. Yeah, yeah. He's good. He's so good. Um, talk to George uh, Slaughter. Nice. Very, very nice guy. Yeah. Turn it. You have a good nostalgic sense without being just, just nostalgia. It's good. Also, I mean, I'm I'm 46, so all the stuff that they did happened before I was born. Yeah, I know. So I can't be nostalgic about things that I wasn't there to see. I thought you were like 40. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's nice to have somebody like, like kind of, it is a trajectory. It all happened, you know, and like what was funny then, you know, it's, it's always that, you know, but there was kind of a, like a beautiful trajectory of American comedy. You know, and there's the woman's story. There's the, you know, there's the Jewish story. There's the black story. There's like all kinds of the story, you know, and they're all fighting to contribute, not to take more, right? To contribute more. It, to me, it's so, it's so important. And not, I'm not that I need to be asked about it or not asked about it, but um, the positioning you come from to, comes from your your background and your and that like you you gotta know being a woman writer on the drew carey show traveling with who's line all over the place in buses and planes on uso tours in on army bases it's a whole thing you know i have four i grew up with four brothers and i love it i loved it but it's a whole different thing you know Right, but I just meant that I didn't, I didn't treat you as the female writer. I just treated, I just talked to you as a writer for the show. I yes, that's very nice. I'm glad you do that. Yeah. But it is a different sensibility. Sure, I, I like get to the point where it's like I can't be around another funny man. You know, it's like, like the Drew Carey. We had a fart machine in the room. And it could make like these guys with like 160 IQs laugh till they cried. This, it had like 13 farts on it or something like. And it's, you get to the point where like you're just like over your head with it. Yeah, I mean it's just a different tool. But I did like it. I liked that they were them. You know, it was really fun. And what was working on Last Man Standing like? That wasn't my favorite. Uh, thing and it, it wasn't anyone's fault but uh it, it was kind of like i was starting to go i wasn't fighting as hard you know i had it, i wanted you kind of transcend transition now i'm going to talk about being a woman 
I started kind of feeling like the mom in the room at a certain point. And I'll, and I didn't, it's kind of foisted upon you. Like somebody came into my office and was crying. They wanted to tell me, and I'm okay, but it's like, you have to build a relationship for that. But I felt like people were very, it's, I, I started to have this new identity because I wasn't like, cause I was getting older and I didn't have very much fun on that show. And I only stayed for a little while, which was fine. And I love Tim, Tim, and he, I mean, he's, he's ridiculous. Um, and Tim, what's his name? The showrunner, Tim, I can't remember. I marched with him on the, on the strike line and he was great, but I, I felt a little adrift on that show. It's also not my sensibility, like a, a gun store and, you know, it was kind of very middle of the road, kind of. I'm a lefty, mm. you know, and now like I had such a great time. I'm so glad it's over, but I had such a great time on the strike line. I was a strike captain. I was there every day. I'm, I met so many people, including Larry Jacobson and Alan Katz and uh, a bunch of people. Amazing, really great. And since then, too, I'm kind of doing a lot to uh, help younger, not just younger, if you know, but that's kind of how it works out because that's who's trying to get into their career. Writers, performers, you know, meeting with people, hearing their story, helping them. You know, I'll be working on the election. I like keeping looking for, I, I did videos. Uh, I have a YouTube channel. I don't know what it's called. It's your name. It's your name. Is it? Julie yeah. Larson? Uh, it, for the 2020 election, I did four videos that went really well. And now I, I just got approached to do more of those, which are all targeted toward middle-aged women in suburbs, you know. Here I am, that's me. Although I'd love to, I'm not middle-aged, I'm not gonna live to be 120. Yeah, I always I always thought that was funny when some they said a fifty year old person's middle aged. I'm like, well, if you George Burns was middle aged at fifty, but not most people. <laughs> people are. I know, especially comics on the road. I didn't. You did stand up though, didn't you? Yeah, for ten years. Wow, that's great. Did you 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 didn't keep doing it? I guess. Well, yeah. What happened was um, I was teaching at the same time, and I couldn't devote all my time to doing one thing when I had a regular job. And mm. I got tired of having to bring five people every time I wanted to, to do it. I hate I hate that stuff so much now that's going on. So I just said that I can't, because they don't want to hear the same, I'm trying to work on like a five minutes and then 10 minutes. And they're like, well, these are the same jokes as last time. I'm like, I know, but I have to hone it till it's like really good. And then I go another five minutes. And and Where were you doing it? In Manhattan, um, um, it was okay. They tried to reopen the improv, but it was a, it was a couple of blocks away from Letterman Studio, and then they just called it the Broadway Comedy Club. I actually, when I, when I went to LA, I talked. He was so nice. I talked to Drew Carey for like fifteen minutes, so and nice. I was like, "Can I ask you a question? I want to be a comedian." And I was like, "This is 2003," and he talked to me for like fifteen minutes, and. He was like so nice. So that's, when nice. I, that's when I saw you. Yeah, you. I'm sure you saw me then, because I was that I was up with him. We yeah, at the improv. Yeah. yeah, I loved the improv. But when I was doing, like, when I was working at the uh, comedy store, there were, I mean, there were people who got spots because they got a lot of people there. You know. But it was kind of like cheating, like, all right, so you're going to get 20 people to come down here. And I've had people try to get me to go. And I'm like, don't no. like, I never made anybody come and you know, support me. You know, people talk about being supported. It's like, you have to just keep trying until, but I bet there's other places that would let you get up that where you, you know, you're so young. I mean. And you've got such a knowledge of the 
of the crap. Like people that you meet through this, you should probably have some performers on. Send them jokes. Oh, here's a great story for you. Okay. There was a writer that I met on Dharma and Greg, but he was on, he was with Johnny Carson for 20 years. His name was Bob Smith. Yes, I know who he is. You do? Oh, that's I know right. of him, of him. Yeah, yeah. So, and and he was on, I met him on Dharma and Greg. He, he was on Grace Under Fire, Southern guy uh, originally, but lived up in, before his career, he lived in, I think, Michigan. And he worked at a Florsheim Shoes. Did I tell you this story? Okay. So Bob Smith's working at Florsheim Shoes. And at, at work, he would write jokes when nobody was in the store and mail them to Johnny Carson. And he started seeing them on the air. And he'd say to his friend at work, hey, my joke was on Johnny Carson last night. Nobody believed him ever. This went on for like a year. And he and he started doing it more and more and getting more and more jokes in. And he's at work one day and the phone rings and it's for him. Picks it up. Is this Bob Smith? Yes, it is. Well, this is Johnny Carson. And I've been doing your jokes for a while now. I'm curious, how much do they pay you at Florsheim Shoes? And he told him, he said, we can beat that if you'd like to move to Los Angeles and work for me. And that's how his career, isn't that a great? Also, it means the person who was opening the mail was smart enough to see, oh, these are good. Give them to the writers. That when the writers were gracious enough that when Johnny Carson would do the joke, and say, that's great. They'd say, that's that Bob Smith from Floorsheim Shoes. So there's a lot of good graciousness in that story, isn't it? Writer, oh my God, people are always scrambling. When I was 17, I was a senior in high school. Um, I wrote a, a book of jokes. And I sent them to Roddy Dangerfield. And he he bought one. And that's then he, great. And he used it on Dr. Katz. Uh, when he was a guest. You know that cartoon show? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's so great. Do you have the joke written and framed above your computer? No. You should do that. To encourage you to do it more. That would be so good for you. You know, sell some jokes, you know. I think great. I don't even know, like, I know the faxers, as they call them. I don't even know if that exists anymore for the late night shows. Well, people don't care where they get jokes, I don't think. No, I mean, are they still... Like how do you get it to them? Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Well, that's something to figure out. But look, if you have somebody's voice that you think you get, you can just start writing. If you have them written down, then you, if you... Finding the way to get them there is another thing, you know? Right. DMing them on... Is that how you say it? On Twitter yeah. or whatever? Yeah. You know? I'm, I'm... On Twitter, yeah. Yeah. You know, or somebody in their line, you know, it's like, I don't know. But I mean, if you start doing it, then you've got it in case there's a, an opportunity. Some in general, some for specific comedians. Yeah, I know some people have actually been hired from late night shows based on their tweets. Oh, yeah. I bet. And there was that sitcom shit my dad says, which was a, tweet, a Twitter account. Wasn't it a, that had to be a piece of shit. Never watched it, but you no, know. it's horrible. You're an ec you're an economics teacher for Christ's sake. You can't do that. That's a no. smarty, that's a smarty pants thing to teach. Yeah, but it's life skills pretty much. It's checkbook and um oh, because yeah, yeah. it's funny we're talking about comedy as like uh what you do in your day job is so important to the people that you do it for <laughs> comparatively. I mean, I no, I think comedy is really important too, but I mean, that's a really important thing. Especially the people that are in those classes are getting things that they, they have to have to live in the world right. or they're going to be way better off than them. This is kind of, it's interesting, you know, different ways. Right. 
Well, thank you very much. I'm sorry I took so much of your time, but no, I loved it. Come on. Oh, it's we've been on over an hour. Yeah. Well, I hope you can get a half hour out of it or something. Yeah, don't worry, I'll get an hour. It's great. I'm so happy to meet you. And likewise. See, I say I don't like that mother thing, but I'm already we I'm not your mother's age, but like close. Like I have I have nephews your age, and now I'm like. How does that guy get his material? I am a I'm a little mothery. That's how it goes. You're my uncle's age, my mother's younger younger brother, much younger brother. I'm 62, so I'm you know. So you you could be my aunt. I totally could be. I am your aunt. I can't help it. Okay. All right. It's great to meet you. Yeah. yeah. Come on. It's nice to have an aunt in L.A. Exactly. But no, if you come to New York. I'll go to, we'll go to Sardis. We will go to Sardis. And I, of course, as you know, you probably know, I get out to New York now and again. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.